Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Good to see, good to see all y'all. Y'all are brave, man. A third week into this stuff. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you're keeping up with the reading. We as a congregation are reading through the Bible. And uh, what we're doing, Coffee House Theology this year, is kind of taking a summary of the, the previous week, approximately the previous week's re- uh, readings. And so we'll be uh, closing out Genesis, right, t- tonight. And so uh, next week, I don't know if y'all remember, y'all that were here when we went through the Zeke, Dan, and the Rev, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, and, and that, you know, I became wrath man. Every time there was a passage on wrath, I got to teach it. Next week, I'm teaching Job. So kind of son of wrath man, it's suffering dude, I guess. I'm not, not sure what this is. Um, and so I'm just, yeah, so we can, we can kind of be in prayer for that. Um, and Jay said tonight he's leaving extra time for questions. Next week, I will be teaching over. And so there will be no time for any questions on Job. So we'll be, we'll be just kind of expect to be here 750, 755. So even if I'm not finished, I'll start reading something. It'd be like a filibuster. Um, as we do our questions here, uh, you can go to the website Slido. If you've got a, a tablet or a phone, we can go to slido.com. Uh, Enter the room number, which is 9337. And you can ask questions. You can also, if there are questions that are asked, you can also like them. And so it brings them to the top. Um, one of the things we talked about doing that I think we want to try tonight is is going through big swaths of Scripture, especially in our reading together. Uh, you'll get observations, things that the Spirit will show you in the Scripture that maybe you haven't seen before. And so if you want to put those into Slido, start the comment with observation, with the word observation. I don't know how to spell it. I'm an engineer. Okay, but just type in observation. Spell check will, will help you. And, and we will take those as observations and a couple of things. One, we'll, we'll probably talk about them up here. We want to see kind of how the Spirit's working through the congregation. And then I may compile them and send them out uh, in an email to the class. And so we can kind of see the observations. What, what's the Spirit working toward in all of us as a group? And I think that'll be, I think that'll be a really, really interesting exercise. Really interesting exercise. So are we, we aim new, exciting, all good? All right, well, let's pray and get started. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, Thankful for your word, Father. Thankful for the truth that we have a a firm place uh, to to stand, a firm place to root our lives, Father, in the chaos that's around us. Um, Bless us to hear the word. Bless Jay uh, in his teaching. Uh, Open our hearts and minds to your truth, Father, and let your truth change us. Uh, Do not let us be the same people that walked in here that walk out. Because when we encounter Christ, we encounter your word and your truth, Father. We should never be the same. And so, Father, bless us with the humility and the wisdom to hear what you have for us. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus we we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. And uh, grateful again for you guys being here with us. And really excited, just the conversations I'm hearing from life groups and life group leaders and uh, our staff is working uh, through the Bible as well on Tuesdays, so hearing their observations. And um, so to that point, we'd love to hear tonight, uh, you know, some of the things that you guys are seeing as well um, and reflect those back and, and share those with you guys. Uh, yeah, speaking of next week, Job. Um, so uh, I uh, so didn't want to teach Job that I'm going to be on a plane to South Africa. That's how far away from here uh, I wanted to be next week. So you can pray for that. I told Brian I'll be praying about eight hours ahead uh, for him. Uh, but uh, going to work with our partners at Living Hope, uh, several of the ministers, about eight of us are headed down there next, uh, middle of next week. We'll be down there eight days uh, to work with the staff at King of Kings Baptist Church, uh, doing some staff training and also some evangelism uh, out in the community, as well as looking at some future uh, partnership opportunities. Many of you know uh, Taylor Johnson, our children's minister, was the children's minister at that church uh, and came from South Africa. So just uh, uh, as Brian's teaching, 
reach and say a prayer for us. It'll be my first time uh, headed down there, and we will be on now one of the world's longest flights. They opened up in Newark to direct to Cape Down, uh, so 15 hours plus on a plane. So uh, anyway, so I should get some good reading done, maybe a nap or two, and, uh, and so anyway, that'll be where I'm, I'm at next week, so I'd appreciate your prayers for that. All right, well, this week uh, we close out Genesis. That's one of the things. And let me just be totally confessional. I don't know who the guy was who thought whether we should read through the Bible uh, in a year is. I don't know who that guy is. Um, but uh, it's challenged me. It's been a long time. My, my normal mode of operation, the way God has hardwired me, is to study one book of the Bible at a time. I get like 15 commentaries. I dig. I synthesize all that information. I go slow. And so I keep, you know, wanting to to spend my entire day in my 15-minute morning Bible reading because I'm like, wait, what about this? And I gotta go back and I remember something about that. I have notes somewhere. So if you're like me, you're being challenged. It's stretching me uh, to read these large chunks of material and then pulling out these themes. So just an honest confession there. Um, uh, and so we're all wired a little differently and that's the way I'm hardwired. Uh, and so, but it's good for me. It's a different kind of discipline for me. And so uh, as we work through this tonight, uh, I hope that uh, God is, is teaching you uh, some new things as he is teaching me. Uh, so just remember what we said as our background as we work through the Bible. You can know the Bible and know, uh, not know the word uh, as the word is Jesus Christ. So we don't do this uh, to just be smarter, uh, to know more facts and trivia, uh, but we do this because we wanna be transformed by the living word and his name is Jesus. Uh, we continue to use uh, George Guthrie's uh, chronological plan. Uh, the, the little reader's guide looks like this, so that's where uh, these breakdowns come from to give us a framework. So week one uh, was act one in the beginning. Brian took us through Genesis one through 11. Last week was act two, scene one, God's covenant people. Last week was part one of that scene one, uh, Genesis 12 through 29. Uh, and this week, of course, is part two. So last week we saw God calling uh, a, a childless, uh, pr uh, previously unknown guy by the name of Abram to leave his homeland and go. No details, no specifics, no travel itinerary. Uh, and in one of the most remarkable steps of faith, it says, and Abram went. Uh, and so such began the journey of God calling a people to himself. Uh, we saw God bringing salvation through judgment. We spent some time talking about that theme that's in the Bible uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah, the idea that God eventually brings his judgment to bear uh, after repeated warnings, uh, and, but yet at the same time, he always preserves and saves a remnant of his people. Uh, and so that's one of the themes that we'll see as we continue through uh, the Old Testament. Uh, we saw the birth of Isaac uh, in Jacob and Sarah's old age, and we saw Abraham's faith tested. Uh, we spent some time leaning into chapter 22 of Genesis uh, and realizing how that story in many ways foreshadows uh, the cross. And then we saw Isaac marrying Rebekah, uh, and Jacob and Esau are born, and from day one, they are into it with each other. Uh, and so that's kind of uh, brings us back to where we can pick up this week. So George Guthrie, uh, introducing this section of the Bible, part two uh, of uh, scene uh, one here, says, this week we look for recurring themes in the narratives of Jacob and Joseph. That's one of the gifts of doing Bible reading, right? That instead of just drilling into any in one individual story, we're able to look at the two side by side. We've seen that Jacob's life was marked by deception, 
Yet we'll notice this week the great integrity of Joseph's life. And finally, the story, of course, is one of deliverance from famine, but it also will set up the story of the great deliverance, the exodus, by moving Jacob's family to Egypt. So next week, we move into Job. Scholars aren't exactly sure of when Job was written, uh, but uh, we know it was very early, so that's why we'll jump into Job. But then after Job, we'll be back uh, into Exodus uh, following the Bible reading. So that's the reason uh, for the placement of Job there. So we jump back into chapter 30 with Jacob's dysfunctional family. Uh, Jacob was a man who lived up to the meaning of his name, Deceiver. I remember when we were expecting our very first child and my wife and I would have date night and we would go to Books A Million in Decatur, Alabama and we would pull out baby name books and we would sit there and basically Tanya would throw out a name and I would shoot it down. Because as a guy, I would be like, well, they'll nickname him this, right? Or they'll call her that. Or no, it sounds too much like this person that I didn't like in high school. You know, you just, all of those names have meaning, don't they? Well, in the Bible, especially, that was a particular clue a lot of times about a person's nature and their character. And so we're going to see that this week, that one of the themes is identity. Uh, And that's one of the themes that runs throughout the Bible. And certainly Jacob's character, and many of you know that my given birth name is Jacob, and my kids had great joy the last week reminding me as we were in the Bible reading uh, that my name means deceiver. Uh, But he was constantly trying to manipulate his way into God's blessing. But the success of God's plan is not based on a person's merit, but on God's power, his mercy, and his grace. So one of the themes that has emerged to me as we read through these stories, kind of beginning to end uh, in big chunks, is just the way that it's almost like you're like, come on, dude, right? And yet God continues to work despite them. Jacob's family life was anything but shalom. Uh, Chapter 30 reads like a a, a soap opera. I mean, you know, and and so for any of those people out there who think having more than one wife is a good idea, right? Just point them to Genesis chapter 30 uh, as a prime example of what takes place. And then we get uh, handmaidens involved and it gets all kinds of crazy. But then you step back and I don't know about you, but I've gone through, of course, I underline in my Bible as all these children are born. Do those names sound familiar to you? Because they become the famous 12 tribes of Israel, of course. And when you go back to realize that even the start of that was a total dysfunctional mess, you realize just how big God is to bring something uh, from what seems to be a total family disaster. And so shalom, peace, is certainly not in Jacob's family, just like it wasn't in Abraham's family uh, or Isaac's family. And yet God increases both his children and his material wealth as he goes through the story. And so it's fascinating uh, that as they are working through these issues, uh, that God continues to bless. In chapter 31, Jacob decides it's time to have a clean break from his father-in-law. And so there's an entire working out, and we discover that Jacob's father-in-law is pretty deceptive, just like Jacob. So you've got a bunch of backstabbing, uh, right, dysfunctional people who are trying to make things work on their own, in their own strength, and yet God's will superintends their actions to bring about his plan and his purposes. And I think that's so relevant for us today because I think there are so many of us who want to force God's hand. Uh, we, We want the formula by which if we do this, then God will do that. 
Uh, we want a plan of action by which we think, hey, I can make these things happen in my own timing and in my own strength. And really in my own life, I think that's what I struggle with, is God's timing. I know that God's got it in the big picture, I just want him to hurry up already because I'm tired of waiting. And as we'll see in particular in the story of Joseph, God works out his things in his way, in his timing. And that's important for us to understand. But during this entire episode with uh, Jacob's family and the building of his life, so to speak, as he's accumulating children and uh, possessions and flocks and these kind of things, the thing that you see in the text is that he is getting closer and closer back to the promised land. And so the movement, whereas one point Jacob had moved away, he's now moved back closer to the promised land. There's some interesting signs of spiritual growth in Jacob's life. Uh, for instance, as he makes this promise with Laban, Laban sets up a heap of stones. Jacob sets up one stone. Most scholars believe that that is a reference to what the two men believed that Laban was a polytheist, that he believed, as many of the other Canaanite people did, in many gods. So he heaps up a pile of stones. These are all my little gods and all my little rocks, and I'm gonna put them in a pile, right? And they're gonna be the symbol that I respond to. But Jacob, right, puts up one stone pillar because he believes the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so it's interesting that you begin to see some signs of Jacob's faith and him leaning into the promise of his forefathers as his character develops over the years. By the time we get to chapter 32, we know that about 20 years have passed since Jacob fled from Esau, fearing for his life. And so Jacob is naturally fearful of how this reunion is gonna go and how it's gonna shake out. But what's fascinating is, is right in the middle of the story of Jacob reuniting with Esau comes an encounter with God. Read with me in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through uh, 32. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. It's interesting that uh, over the course of time, right, a guy will build up his life around him, so to speak, right? These are the things that identify him. His career, his family, his kids, all of these things. And in this moment, Jacob finds himself alone, which is significant because there's something that God wanted to do. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you asked me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. 
So this is a story, of course, with a lot of layers and a lot of complexity to it. But the reality is, for all of the things that are kind of hard to interpret, right? Man was that God. Jacob identified him later as God. Was it an angel? Was it a, a representation of God? Jacob saw, said he saw him face to face, yet the Bible also says you can't see God face to face and live. So is that a figure of speech? All of these things. The thing that we know that's significant is this, is that Jacob Right, locked into a wrestling match with this guy as a symbol of the reality that Jacob had struggled continually with all of the people and relationships in his life. And now it came time for Jacob to struggle with God and his identity and who he truly was. And so at this moment, Jacob leans into his faith, right, saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And I cannot tell you the countless people that I have encountered who in essence don't know who they truly are in Christ. And so they wrestle, they struggle. There's an internal strife because it affects their relationships, it affects their career, it affects their peace and contentment in life because they don't know who they are. And I've often used this story to basically counsel them to say, what you need to do, brother, is you, you, you need to get in a wrestling match with God. You need to pray and you need to say, God, I'm not letting go until you show me what you have for my life. And here's the hard part of that. The, the man does what? He touches his thigh, right? Injures him, so to speak. In other words, Jacob needed to be broken. A.W. Tozer, the famous pastor from Chicago, once said, it is doubtful that God will use a man totally until he has broken him completely. In other words, a lot of times we have to be broken of ourselves, of our pride, in Jacob's case of his deception, that there is a symbolism here that God needed to mark Jacob and Jacob, understand, would walk the rest of his life with a limp because of this encounter. But he would always remember the encounter that defined him and who he was. And so striving to wrestle who your identity is in Christ is an important part of the spiritual journey. And Jacob shows that to us. And in that moment, God blesses that. Again, the hound of heaven pursuing. I, I, it's always overlapping with my sermon preparation when I teach. But this Sunday, we're again in the 23rd Psalm. And remember what it says. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, will pursue me all the days of my life. And this is an example of God had chosen Jacob and he is pursuing him marking him for his plan and his purpose. And when a man discovers his plan, or woman, discovers their plan and their purpose that God has for their life, it fundamentally alters who they are. There is a radical transformation that takes place. That happens, of course, at the time of salvation, when we recognize who we are, that we're sinners who need a savior. And it happens as we are continually transformed by the spirit of God that lives in us. And so Jacob is given a new name, Israel. He strives with God. And that is an important part of his new identity. So after a lifetime of struggling with others, Jacob has finally come to realize the importance of being blessed by God. And interestingly enough, after this, his encounter with Esau goes much differently than he expected. Because he is a changed man. And obviously God had been working in Esau's heart and life as well. And so the two of them are, uh, are reconciled. A lot of commentators have noted that in chapter 33, verse four, there are a lot of parallels to the story of the prodigal son. Esau ran to meet Jacob. 
That was a super undignified thing to do. If you were a male of any uh, stature in ancient Israel, you didn't run to meet anybody. Uh, but here he ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him. If you read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, as Jesus tells that story, he intentionally uses those same phrases uh, to evoke uh, that powerful reunion that took place. Uh, as we see the story progress, uh, we recognize that there's a little twist at the end because Esau says, come live with me, and Jacob does, but not quite. Uh, he goes and settles in the town near him, but again, thinking about, the, thinking about the spiritual development of Jacob, at the very end, the last verse of chapter 33, Jacob builds his first altar, his first place of worship to God. So we've seen Jacob's progression uh, as he continues to understand more of who God is and who he is. And then we get to chapter 34. And if you've been reading these stories with your kids, right, these are the ones that get real fun in a hurry. Uh, but the rape of Dinah in chapter 34 is, bottom line, one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible. So almost as soon as Jacob returns to Canaan, there's an incident that threatens the future security of the whole family. Uh, Dinah is raped by a local. Uh, it's interesting what takes place here. It talks about the fact that after the rape took place, then his soul was drawn to her, which reinforces what the Bible teaches, that our wires for sexuality and spirituality run very closely. And so the reality is, is that what our culture teaches about casual sex is a myth, it's a lie. Anytime that you are sexually engaged with someone, even if it's not holy and in the right boundary that God set for it within the boundary of marriage, there is still a heart connection that is made there. Uh, and that certainly was the case uh, for this young man. And so, of course, he sets out to try to manipulate for her to be his bride. And so uh, her brothers see this as an opportunity uh, for to be, to be vindictive. And so while the incident is inexcusable, the violent retribution by Simeon and Levi uh, far exceeds the crime as they kill off a whole village. And while they are reluctant to acknowledge any fault, hmm, I wonder who they learned that from, dear old dad Jacob. Jacob is now very aware that their actions have endangered them all. So we see that Jacob's trajectory is changing, but the sins of the father uh, are being repeated by the sons. Uh, furthermore, circumcision, which was intended by God to be a sign of his people, has been used callously here to bring harm. Note that all of this takes place in this chapter without any reference to God. So there's no condoning, there's no approving, right? Again, prescriptive uh, versus descriptive. Most of the Old Testament is descriptive. It's telling us the events that happened. It's not in any way uh, trying to justify that these things were good things, even though uh, oftentimes they came about uh, through the line of the people that were chosen by God. So ugly, awful scene, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, as you read this, the roller coaster that you kind of go on, you're kind of like, okay, Jacob, all right, we're getting there, all right, God's working with him, and then you have just a totally valley, deep, dark, ugly scene like this, and then you step back and you realize, isn't that like life? what we see around us all of the time. I mean, we see God at work in some incredible ways in our world and then we hear awful, horrible, tragic stories of things that are happening as well. And so now, here we go, back up the mountain, uh, so to speak, as we see God renewing his covenant with Jacob. 
Uh, like most of us dudes, we have to be told things more than once for it to get through our thick skulls. Uh, and Jacob was exactly the same way. So let's read uh, chapter 35, verses one through 15. God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. You hear that? Put away your foreign gods? That within Jacob's household, there was that compromise that was taking place? So there's always this process of spiritual maturity in, in God's people and in the households that they're a part of, that there's always this temptation to assimilate and to, to add in addition to the worship of Yahweh, other gods. And so Jacob says, nope, God has called us, we're gonna, we're gonna get ourselves right. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. It was interesting, hiking in Israel a few years ago, uh, I have a picture I took of a terebinth tree. Uh, these trees are the mighty oaks. It's sometimes translated that way. They are massive. And many of these trees are hundreds and some of them thousands of years old. Uh, our entire hiking group of about 30 could sit in the shade of one single terebinth tree. So when you think about the land and when you hear, man, buried it under a tree, and we think about landscape, like right here around the church, right? How would you remember that is? In Israel, there aren't very many trees. These were massive landmarks. Uh, and so that terebinth was a huge landmark that was there on the landscape. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. Again, God's gracious provision. Jacob was scared to death. So understand the step of faith that this was, for him to leave his camp, to step out into the people that, by the way, their son just slaughtered an entire village of their relatives, and so they're probably all gonna wanna hunt you down. And so what does God do? He strikes terror into their hearts so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, which means the house of God, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I, am, uh, that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the house of God. So notice that, again, the covenant is reiterated. And this happened several times. It's a pattern. God has to keep reminding his people of his promises. But notice that every time he does it, he expands it. As the person grows, God helps reveal more of the covenant to them. And so notice the progression of the covenant this time. Verse nine, we see the blessing again. Verse 10, we see the new identity reinforced, this time God being even more specific and direct with him. But notice verse 11. With it, this time comes responsibility. 
Everybody loves to be blessed. We all want to sign up for God's blessing, right? Yes, God, I want you to bless me. But the part of the covenant that many of us don't understand is the second part, and that's that we are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. And all of this goes back to what God told Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter one. Fill the earth, subdue it. We call it the first commission often, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And so what God has always been doing is working to call a people unto himself to enjoy his grace and to extend his glory. And that's the same story that we're a part of today. But now in the new covenant, we enjoy his grace through Christ Jesus. And we are commissioned, the great commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he has commanded. And he has promised what? To be with us always as we fulfill that. So understand and begin to see those threads in scripture, that this is God again, making sure that his word and his purpose are accomplished. This time, Jacob gets not only the blessing and the new identity, but also the responsibility, the calling on his life to expand God's kingdom through his family that God is going to make into a great nation. And so, at the end of this chapter, we see the death of Rachel, who dies giving birth to the 12th son, Benjamin. So now the 12 tribes of Israel are complete. And Isaac eventually dies at the ripe old age of 180 years. Uh, honest moment in conversation. My wife and I were dialoguing uh, earlier in Genesis and uh, in the part about Methuselah. And she's like, who in the world would want to live to be 969 years old, right? She's like, I, I would not want to live, right? These, these, these ages. But you notice that after the flood, the ages are getting shorter and shorter uh, because the earth's atmosphere changed after the flood. Uh, and as the earth was more populated, right, God uh, began to work in shorter and shorter time frames in people's lives. And so Isaac breathed his last, died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his son, his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Uh, chapter 36, we get the word that Brian introduced you to that is a key word in the book of Genesis, the word for generations, the Toledotes. What's interesting is with Esau, because God chose not to advance his covenant through that line, we get their names for genealogy purposes. Uh, they will come back around, some of them, uh, as enemies and adversaries to God's people, their descendants in future future pages of the Old Testament, but we get a a couple of generations of Esau's people. But then chapter 37, and because again, this is a marker as you're reading Genesis, oh, generations, that means we're being introduced to a new storyline. And so we get the storyline of Joseph beginning in chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob and we launch right into the story of Joseph in chapter 37. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Notice that the text begins to use the name Israel more often than Jacob after the passage that we just read for Jacob's identity, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak 
uh, peacefully to him. So unfortunately, Jacob was learning things about God, but he wasn't taking good parenting lessons along the way. Uh, favoritism hadn't worked out well in his generation, but unfortunately, uh, he is going to play favorites as well. This family was a dysfunctional mess. To sum it up, past wounds, grief and loss, favoritism here specifically in the form of a royal robe, the uh, coat of many colors, so to speak. Uh, And uh, we see uh, hatred, jealousy, on and on it goes. So of course, Joseph's brothers do not like him being a tattletale, so they hatch a little plot. When Joseph interprets dreams properly and brags about it, uh, then that's the final straw. And so they decide that they're going to kill their brother. Of course, cooler heads prevail to some degree, and they decide they can make a little money off the deal, and so they decide to sell Joseph into slavery. And so at this moment, there again is little shalom in Jacob's house. Yet, God's fingerprints are all over the story. Jacob's dream might be dead, but God's plan is very much at work. Flip with me in your Bibles back to chapter 15. In the original covenant to Abraham, God had said something. He had given a specific detail. In verses 13 and 14, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So, One of the things, the perspectives that we have is that eventually God's people are going to be led to a land for 400 years, and now we are seeing how they got there. That's one of the gifts of reading the Bible and watching God fulfill his word. As he said to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter one, I am watching over my word in order to fulfill it. And so we can trace how all of these things played themselves out. At the time, Abram wasn't given all the details because he didn't need all the details. Often, God gives us his instruction, and what do we want? We want the details, but God says, you leave the details to me. Your job is to be obedient. Your job is to watch my hand and my plan at work. And we act like God is surprised by current events, our historical events, or the things that happen in our life. I've got news for you. God's not surprised. He's not caught off guard by any of it. Our job, is to look for where God's at work and to join him in what he's already doing. And that's the role of God's people. And so that sets up the story of Joseph in chapter 37, and then a lot of people are like, oh, chapter 38 of Genesis, here we go again, right? Back down into the mess, into the valley. Uh, As a matter of fact, some people question, I've had this question before, why why is this even here? Why is it even in the story of of, uh, Joseph? And what I've learned over the years, When I come to a difficult passage of scripture to interpret or something that seems like it's out of place, it's there for a reason. And the harder I lean in, the more I study, the more I have an aha moment of why it's there all along. And there's something to be said for the discovery because again, we know that God's word is exactly what he wanted us to have. And so uh, I had a uh, seminary professor who said, A paradox is a truth standing on its head trying to get your attention. 
And so when you encounter something that seems to, on surface level, not make much sense, the harder you lean into that, the more you realize what's taking place. This story isn't a paradox per se, but it bears repeating that when we lean into God's word, when we study hard, all of a sudden we can begin to make some connections. So in another very ugly chapter of the Bible, we see Judah and his family as a total and shocking moral disaster. This chapter shows that Jacob's sons were beginning to adopt Canaanite practices. And so the prostitute by the side of the road that Judah, you know, falls for, who awkwardly happens to be his daughter-in-law, right? Gross. Uh, All of these kind of things. But it shows you that they were beginning to fall in with the people of the land. So part of what happens in God taking his people to Egypt, and as we'll see later, specifically Goshen, is that he is removing his people from that temptation, where their identity would be maintained and refined. As we talked about last week, the identity of God's people, a people set apart, that's one of the things that God is always keeping before his covenant people, that they are a people set apart. This chapter also sets the stage for what to come, what would be to come. The story arc of Judah and who he is gonna be. And again, when you read this story and then you think about the fact that we call Jesus the lion of what? Judah. Do you realize how far we've come? Like, if God can do something with this mess of a human being, then he can do something with anybody. Because this is what we see of Judah and his character at this point in his life. It's pretty remarkable. We also know that chapter 39 comes next. And so in relation, we're going to see that Joseph's sexual ethics are very different than Judah's sexual ethics. And do you know what's going to define us, brothers and sisters, in our era of redemptive history? our sexual ethic, because that will lead us as Christians to stand out in stark contrast to the rest of the world around us. As the world continues to say, anything goes. Not only that, the more crass, the more vulgar, the more weird, the more far out there we can go, the better. As we continue to say, you know what? God has a good plan for sexual expression. It's between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. That's what makes you happy, not anything goes. That stands out, that is an example of a people who are set apart. And so as the world grows darker, understand that the light shines in brighter contrast to the darkness of that world. And that's part of why these two chapters are set side by side to one another. Because in chapter 38, you see total moral and sexual revulsion. But then in chapter 39, you see Joseph, who has the courage when he had every reason to give into temptation, instead he flees because he has a moral compass that God has placed inside of him. Was Joseph perfect? No. But in this situation, that's there to help us compare and to contrast those two realities. And then, of course, there is the story of the family line that would produce the royal line of King David. We see that line outlined uh, at the end of the book of Ruth. And so you've got the line of Judah. And again, a fascinating little story of God always using the younger instead of the older, using the unexpected instead of the expected. And in this one, it's almost comical, right? Because the old brother sticks his arm out first and the nursemaid, right, the midwife ties a red rope around it and then that goes in. So Perez is the one who ends up coming out, but he's technically the second born, but yet he is the one who becomes part of the line 
of uh, David and ultimately the line of the Messiah. Again, God working contrary to uh, the uh, conventional wisdom and the conventional plan of the age. So we see that theme of another younger brother. So at this point, it brings us up to Joseph's lessons in adversity. So in chapter 39, we see Joseph, he's recognized for his leadership right away in Egypt, and so he moves from being a servant to being in charge of Potiphar's household. Yet Potiphar's wife, notices him as well, tries to take advantage of him. When he flees, she concocts a story. He is unjustly imprisoned. Yet, he holds on to the greater promise. I want you to look carefully at a few verses with me in chapter 39. We're not gonna read the whole thing for the sake of time, but you might wanna underline or highlight these. Verse two, the Lord was what? With Joseph. Then we see the events unfold. Then take a look at verse 21. Now he's in prison, but it says, the Lord was what? With Joseph and showed him his steadfast love. Now that word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word kesed. It's the closest word in the Old Testament that we have to the New Testament word of grace. And so what's defining Joseph's life, the author is letting us know, is not his position, is not his circumstance, but is the fact that his God is with him whether in a position of power or whether unjustly thrown into prison. Look at uh, verse 23. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because why? The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's a reminder to us that no matter our circumstance, the important reality is, is that we have a God who is with us. Emmanuel, right, in Hebrew. Him anu el, God with us. That's the defining reality for those, those who are followers of God. And so, of course, what happens? He's in uh, prison with uh, two other prisoners. He correctly interprets their dreams. Joseph has one tiny little request, right? Will you remember me, right? If, if God makes it so you are sprung from this prison. And so guess what happens? Joseph is forgotten. And so he's left to cool his heels, as chapter 41 will tell us, for two more years. Now, can you imagine two years sitting in prison, unjustly in prison, just going back over the events of your life? My brothers betrayed me, right? I was unjustly accused. I, I should have been out. I did what God gifted me to do, interpret dreams. Here I am. How's God gonna use me? I don't know how many of you are familiar with Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat but my daughters have been in that production about four times. So I can't help as I read the story, but I've got all of these songs, right, uh, that bounce through my head. But the emotional high point of that musical, and he got it right, is this scene. And so the Joseph character sings a song called Close Every Door to Me. And in the chorus, he talks about the realities that the children of Israel are never alone and that the answers of life lie far from this world. And it is poignant, it is haunting, it's powerful, because you've got Joseph alone, no pomp and circumstance there, grappling with the sovereignty of God, and why am I here, yet never letting go of faith. The children of Israel are never alone, recognizing that even in a lonely moment, he is there and God is still with him. So of course, 
this leads us to chapter 41. And in chapter 41, it's now Pharaoh uh, who's having trouble interpret his dreams. And at that moment, uh, the, uh, the, the chief cupbearer is like, oh yeah, that guy in prison. I forgot about him. He's pretty good at interpreting dreams. What was happening? God's timing, his perfect plan. Because in that moment, Joseph is able to interpret that dream. Pharaoh looks around and is like, well, who could execute uh, the interpretation of that dream? And of course, that man is Joseph. And so he goes from being prisoner to prime minister almost overnight. He enacts the plan by which he saves and stores the grain. And what's fascinating about that story is that God exalts Joseph to save the world. Notice the language there at the end of chapter uh, 41. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. We call that common grace that God will raise up his people to bless others, even those who don't know him, by their good leadership, their good skills. That is a form of God's grace in the world. But there is also a particular grace, God caring about his plan, his sovereign grace, in that God has a plan to save Joseph's family and therefore keep the covenant alive and the promise moving in the direction that he wants us to go. And so that leads us now to the encounter with Joseph's brothers, chapters 42 through 44. Joseph's brothers, like the rest of the world, head to Egypt looking for food. Uh, They need some cereal at the breakfast table, and they encounter Joseph who recognizes them, but of course they don't recognize Joseph. Jacob's sons, we see, are still entrenched in their pattern of dysfunction and guilt. There's all kinds of hints and allusions to their guilt uh, throughout this section. So Joseph puts them through three tests to see if they've changed. Number one, Joseph knows that there's a missing brother. So he coyly questions them about if this is all of them. And of course, they don't know what he's up to. So uh, he, they tell him, no, we're, we're missing a bro. So he said, well, you've got to go back and get him. So test one, are you going to leave a brother behind, right? All of this is very poetic justice. Uh, Joseph is a very, very smart dude. And so some of the things he's experiencing are coming back around. We know the end of the story, but in the middle of the story, it's brilliant because you kind of wonder, is Joseph simply plotting his revenge with these tests that he has given, he's uh, giving to his brothers? Test number two, how will you react when I play favorites? He gives Benjamin, when he comes back with them, five times what he gives everybody else at the banquet. And number three, finally the ultimate one, is it your brother or your freedom? And here we go, Judah, this despicable guy from a few chapters ago, now all of a sudden steps up, gives the longest speech, by the way, in the entire book of Genesis, in which he offers himself as a substitute for his brother. This dude is changing. And it's pretty remarkable to see what takes place. So now let's read the big reveal in chapter 45. By the way, just quick side note, this is just fun for all you Bible geeks out there. As Joseph seats all of the brothers in their exact birth order, the odds of that happening by random chance, one in 39,917,000. That's a number Brian Ball would appreciate, our statistician. So I just had to throw that in there for fun. That's why they are amazed when that takes place. And they're kind of like, mm, something's gotta be up here. And so all the foreshadowing is pretty awesome. This is an epic story to be sure. So chapter 45, verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Can you imagine the emotional weight he's been carrying? 
Can you imagine the years of pent up frustration, anger, every emotion under the sun, wondering is his dad alive who loved him so much, wondering if he got the chance to give it back to his bros, what he would do, right? All of this has been building up inside of him for all of these years. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Get this, he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it and that the household of Pharaoh heard it. What a wail, what a cry. Cathartic is what counselors call that, right? That must have been. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers... Well, the cats got their tongue, right? They could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. That's like one of probably the biggest understatements there is. Uh, They're like, this dude's gonna chop our heads off, right? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me, remember our God is ascending God, before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now that, my friends, is perspective and faith to recognize that you might have done this doesn't absolve us of our moral responsibility for our choices and our actions, but it is God who is always at work in and through everything. And so in this moment, we see Joseph revealing that true identity to his brothers. And I love this. As we go on, we don't have time to read it all, but what the brothers are sent to tell Jacob parallels what the church is sent to tell. He's not dead, but he's alive. He's been exalted and rules. He wants you to come live with him. And number four, he'll meet every need. That's pretty cool, isn't it? When you begin to see those dots connecting. So Jacob and Joseph are joyously reunited. Joseph gets this, wisely settles them in Goshen. So they are on the edge of the Egyptian empire. Uh, They're out there on the edge. And so he can look over them. They are protected by him and the, the, the Egyptians at that moment. They can earn a good living because they know the rule of life, but yet they can keep their distinct way of life and they won't be assimilated into the ways of the Egyptians and their practices. That's why when we get to the beginning of Exodus, you'll see, for instance, the midwives have a respect right, and refused to do what the Pharaoh ordered because they weren't assimilated into the Egyptian empire at that time. And that was the practice of most empires, was they would assimilate these different people groups. And so wisely, uh, Joseph uh, knew how his people needed to be close, but not sucked into the, the power struggles of the empire themselves. And so the Genesis ends with a few final acts for the sake of summary. Number one, Jacob's hope is revived in Joseph's, in what, what happens when he learns that Joseph is alive. 
Uh, and so Joseph's suffering finds its final purpose. God's chosen family, of course, is reunited. And three, in a remarkable finish to Genesis, we see Jacob's finest hour as he stands on the promise and blesses his children and his grandchildren. That's in chapter 48. In chapter 49, he gives a prophecy that will shape the future of God's people and that points to a future Messiah. So the Spirit speaks through Jacob. That idea of prophecy, again, imagine a number of mountain ranges. He's blessing his children and his grandchildren, but as he does that, the Spirit inspires him to say things about the ones that were to come. And so we see in particular, uh, verse 10 of chapter 49, scholars have long noted that this was a messianic prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tributes come to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. One of the earliest and clearest prophecies of the Messiah that was to come. So Jacob dies. He's given a funeral fit for a king. And after 80 years of service in Egypt, Joseph dies as well. And let's read chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him, right? Old grudges die hard. And these boys are thinking, uh-oh, daddy's out of the picture. Now maybe we're gonna get what's coming to us. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. No evidence that Jacob actually said such a thing. They're still trying to put words in their dad's mouth, manipulate, get themselves off the hook. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And these are the words. This is the verse you wanna memorize. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph's brothers are almost like, this is too good to be true, right? We're gonna get what's coming to us. And Joseph's like, no, listen, I'm not God, right? There is a God, I am not him, as I have you guys remind each other often, as I need reminded of often. I recognize that God has worked. And so the stability, the integrity of Joseph's character is seen up to the very end in the dealings with his brothers. So on your next page, uh, on our themes for application, a few things. Number one is I love this from Sidney Gradanus who has a book called Preaching Christ from Genesis. The story of Genesis that begins with God creating a beautiful paradise on earth for his creatures ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, waiting for God to bring his people back to the promised land. Remember, he makes some promise that you're gonna carry my bones to the promised land when we get there. Today, we are much like Joseph, waiting for God to fulfill his promise to restore paradise on earth. And so that bookends the book of Genesis for us. So a few themes for application. Number one, covenant. The story of God's covenant continues to unfold. Have you watched those three specific promises we talked about last week? Blessing, offspring, and land. God continues to provide those things. Not because of the moral integrity of the characters involved. Not because of our ability to keep them, but because God is faithful. That's the way that his covenant works. He is always faithful, even when we are not. 
Number two, identity. Spent some time talking about this earlier, but I want to reiterate it. Jacob's old name reflected his flawed character. Jacob had a manipulative, sinful, wandering heart. This identity was confronted at the turning point of his wrestling match with God. This was important for two reasons. First, the fact that God confronted Jacob hints at the reality that God will not allow Jacob's flawed character and sin to go unchecked. So realize that as well, that God calls that out as he sees fit. God wanted to use Jacob, but God had to transform him first. Second, before the blessing could be carried forward, Jacob had to be broken. Jacob struggled with God, but he wouldn't let him go until he was blessed. So Jacob walked away with a limp, but as a changed man. So no matter how messed up we may be, Genesis 32 reminds us that if we encounter the living God, we can be given a new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old is gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The number three, in particular, I had us read uh, chapter 45 for a reason. I love this parallel. Everything changes when someone you thought was dead is alive. Come near, right? Sin separates us, but it's God's grace that brings us back together again. Joseph tells them, don't be distressed or angry. Grace is greater than sin, anxiety, and guilt. Revenge is expected and, quite frankly, boring. Grace is surprising and what continues to propel the story forward. Grace is far-reaching and transformative. Think about it. Jacob was guilty of what? Living in the past. He needed God's grace to revive him, as the text tells us. Number two, Judah. He obviously had a sordid past. He was trying to change. He needed God's grace to transform him into a man of courage. Joseph, he had the need to forgive and he was eventually able to forgive his brothers. And the nation of Israel itself, they needed hope because all hope was gone. They were a dysfunctional mess. And then two of the best words in the Bible, anytime you find them, but God in Genesis 45, seven. God's grace focuses our hearts on God's good purposes instead of dwelling on man's evil intentions. It gives us a vertical instead of a horizontal view of the world. As for you, the passage we just read, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Grace transforms, gives us a different lens by which we see the world around us. And that is vitally important. So several years ago, I think it was in the fall of 2016, we preached a series of messages on the life of Joseph from the end of Genesis. And we entitled the series, Our Mess, His Masterpiece. Recognizing that uh, we make a mess of things, but that God is superintending those things to bring about his plan and his purposes. As a part of that sermon series, we had several artists in the church create original works of art. Uh, Lizzie Meeks is here, her husband John painted one of those for us. Uh, and so you'll see it on the screen in just a moment. But as a part of that, uh, our creative team put together uh, a, a video that I honestly, it's one of my favorite videos that we have ever done because it tells the story in reverse. And you're gonna see the lies that we believe in our mess and our dysfunction. And you're gonna see how when we properly understand what God is up to, how that reverses our understanding so that we can see what he's been up to all along. And the backdrop, as you're gonna see these painters, they, they were working on these original works of art uh, that we used for this series. So uh, I want us to watch that before we do our Q&A tonight. My life will be redeemed. That is not what I believe. 
my life is ruined beyond repair. There is no way that I am loved unconditionally by God. No matter what I have done, no matter who I have been, no matter how dark the day becomes, that is simply a lie. Life is meaningless. Everything is falling apart and the idea that he knows me and he loves me, he has a plan and a purpose for my life, that is both foolish and untrue. He doesn't care about me. I will not be tempted to believe that God is in control of my life. Joseph's story was a mess from the beginning. Each step more uncertain than the last. It's not until we reach the end we see that God was always at work. What if a change in perspective is all it takes? God is in control of my life. I will not be tempted to believe that He doesn't care about me. That is both foolish and untrue. He has a plan and a purpose for my life. He knows me and He loves me. The idea that everything is falling apart and life is meaningless, that is simply a lie. No matter how dark the day becomes, no matter who I have been, no matter what I have done, I am loved unconditionally by God. There is no way that my life is ruined beyond repair. That is not what I believe. My life will be redeemed. Our lives are His masterpiece. I think that captures it well. And might I note, that sounds like the voice of Hal Wage. So that deep voice, so really, really powerful. But uh, absolutely love, uh, love those stories and how they help us to see the big picture of what God's up to. All right, Brian, let's go. Observations, questions. Let's see what we got tonight. Standard disclaimer. So we do our best with these things. Uh Uh-oh, don't bypass the first question. Already a warning shot fired. (laughs) First question is, how is my arm? <laughs> Thank you very much for your concern. It's, uh, I, would, I would call it um, fragile. I do not like being hurt, and I do not like drawing attention to myself, which is why it's not wrapped. It is kind of tender at this stage, but it's, it's tender enough I can get my watch on, so that's God's grace. Um, but I, and I really do, I sincerely appreciate your concern. Uh, that was that we, uh, it, apparently at my vast years. Uh, falls are fairly significant. Uh, but anyway, okay, so let's get back to Bible stuff. But thank you very much for your concern. Um, any significance or reasoning for Simeon being left behind, being the brother that remains with Joseph before the brothers return with Benjamin? The only thing I can think of, you know, I don't know that the scripture tells us, but the only observation I make is he was, he was the second born brother. And so the firstborn would be the spokesman and the heir. So he would be able to speak with authority both to the father. And, and so that would be the second most important brother would be the only, only reasoning I could think. I, that, again, that's an opinion thing. That's not a, 
Yeah. I don't know that scripture tells us that. Yeah, that's, but that is one of the themes that we've talked about and you constantly see that, that birth order, who the heir was, all of those things were incredibly important in their culture. It's hard for us to, I mean, it's still important in ours, but back then it was a big, big deal. Right. And so the birthright, all of those things. So again, the subversion of that in the stories and God working through whom he chose, not whom through we would choose. That, that's the theme that you're looking at there. Absolutely. Um, Genesis 31, 19, why did Rachel steal the house gods? Was she looking to, for them for outside help for secondary infertility or was she getting back at her dad? Uh, probably the last, the latter right. for sure, right. because he is bothered when he can't find them. Right, and pursues them. For yes, him, that's right? right, yeah. And, and that becomes a big deal. So that's obviously something that was important to him. Um, while Jacob is blessing his sons, he stops and in verse 18 says, I wait for your salvation, Lord. What's that about? I think that's a, that's a transition. That's where he's going through and blessing each of the sons. And then I think that's the trans, isn't that the transition verse where then it flips back and he says, and these are the outcomes of things. And and so I think that that's one, both a statement of his faith that he is, that this is your prophecy and I wait on the salvation of the Lord. And then these are the things that will happen. If you look the, that, that chapter is divided into two parts. If I recall correctly, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and it, the idea too, uh, uh, as far as the future orientation of that, is that he recognized the covenant had not yet been fulfilled. fulfilled. You know, that that's a forward-looking statement, that that salvation is yet to come. Uh, because again, remember, it's very early in the development of the covenant, the prophecies, the promises about the Messiah. Uh, so they didn't know the details, but they believed, and that's what was credited to them, uh, in, you know, as righteousness, as it says in Hebrews 11, because they believed that God would fulfill uh, those promises. All right, things keep moving. All right, there we go. And the next is an, is an observation. It says, for people who are angry with God, I often pray that they will wrestle it out with God as Jacob did before he is arrogant and deceitful and afterwards he's changed. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right, and that's hopefully what we do when we read his word, right? That's one of the reasons that it's so that's important good. to be in scripture is in scripture you will come across things that you will wrestle with God. That's right. Right, because it, there are things that will make you confused and angry and Right, I, as, as you know, has been said, I, there's times I really want to read the Bible with a Sharpie, right, <laughs> instead of a highlighter. Right? I don't like that at all, so we're going to mark that out. But that's not how it works, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's what these covenants are about. Like you say, the, the, while we all want the blessing, there are also responsibilities and things that come with that. Yeah, that is a great application, though, the fact that one of the ways to wrestle with God is, is to wrestle mm-hmm. with his word. Uh, Paul David Tripp wrote this, and I love this statement. I wrote it down in my Bible in, in a passage in Joshua I was preaching from. But it said, most people who are angry with God are angry with him for being God. They're not angry because he has failed to deliver what he has promised. They're angry because he has failed to deliver what they craved, expected, or demanded. When all of self replaces all of God, God ceases to become your Lord and is reduced to being your endangered servant. And so that's why God has to break so many of us. That's why we need to wrestle with him. That's why there's a change in character because in our pride, we demand things of God. And often when we encounter his word, it humbles us we're frustrated by it. We don't agree with it. But ultimately, that is the standard of truth that we have to submit to or else we'll continue to be prideful and arrogant and think we have all the answers. And that's how Benjamin, one of the, you know, my son who's in college, that's one of the things he says. There are things I, I, I vehemently disagree with in the Bible. However, it's true because God says it. And so he said, I have to decide, am I going to live my life in a true way yeah. or in my way? 
And he said, so even the things that I don't like, even because there are things that he vehemently objects to in the Bible. But if that's the way God says they are, that's the way they are. And so we don't adapt God to who we are. We adapt ourselves to God's truth, right? And that's what we see here. That's what part of this wrestling, that's why, jo- that's why there, Jacob was changed, right? That's why that hip popped, right? Because, because you encounter him, you're changed, and often you're wounded, right? I've read scripture and walked away wounded, <laughs> right? Because I realize the things that are in me, the inadequacies that are in me, right? The shortcomings that are in me. And I know that that needs to be healed and that needs to be given to the Lord. Yeah, our favorite thing to do is to read the Bible and say, I know somebody who needs to hear that, <laughs> right? And then you look up into the mirror. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah. oh, oh, that one's for that's, me. That's not good. That can't be good. Um, let's see. Joseph's response to adversity throughout his life was a direct opposite to what I see in corporate America every day, culminating, of course, in chapter 50. Uh, yeah, well, you know, one of the things I've always, that always has hit me read through this, right? Joseph was thrown in a pit and God was with him. And he was sold to the Egyptian, sold to this caravan and God was with him. And he was thrown in prison and God was with him. At some point I'm going to look at God and go, why don't you go be with somebody else for a while? <laughs> right? It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll take a break. Right? Yeah. And that was, but, but, but we see, right? and that's what we see, that Joseph never le- loses hope. Right, even in the face of injustice. Yeah, Romans 5, verses three through five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. And that's, right, and that's how we form our children, right? It's through perseverance, because perseverance, what our children need is Christian character. And one of the problems is we go through and we take away everything they will have to persevere against. And so they never form character. And so when these moments come and they're thrown in the pit and they're put unjustly into prison and they're, and they're sold off. Or they go to college they go and they have college. a professor right. who oh, teaches something different. Right. They, they don't have the character to stand. Say, come, yeah, come with right. us and do or this. Or come do this. Yes. Right? Because that's what we're going to get into with Job, right, is practice versus belief. Right, I mean, and, and when you get into these practices and they're not rooted in Christ, they're going to be, it's, it's the soils, right? If you don't have roots, you'll just be blown away, yep. right? And so we root our children by allowing them to persevere. Yeah, right? yeah. so to be clear, Joseph is not the hero of his story. Amen. It's Yahweh, it's God. Joseph did a lot of good things, right? But he wasn't perfect. But it was, it was God's sustaining power in Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph tells his brothers when asked, don't tell Pharaoh you're shepherds. When they ask, we are shepherds. When asked, they answered, we are shepherds. Why? Um, as I, gosh, and I, I, as I recall, that's, um, I, I, don't think, I don't think any Hebrew scholar has seen those, the, what they said and what they were asked to say as inconsistent. And I don't know why it's worded that way in English. Because I went back, somebody emailed me this question mm. at some point during the week. And that was when I started going through, through some of the Hebrew stuff and talked to a Hebrew person, not a Hebrew person, a person who's a scholar in Hebrew. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, they said that, that their answer was not inconsistent with what they were asked to answer. And I can't remember where that is. Um, but yeah, I actually, I actually looked at that at some point. Um, observation, seeing gener- generationally, Abraham believed God's promise for prosperity, not just self. He died only owning Sarah's tomb and all the promised land. That's right. 
that, that, and that's what we kind of talked about that first week, right? That, that we, right, we get impatient in those endless seconds of our food in the microwave, right? Much less thinking about what will you suffer so your grandkids will be blessed? What will you suffer so your great-grandkids will be blessed? That's one thing that one of the things that Western culture has broken, uh, and, and in, in particular, and there's some really good talks on this on kind of how when we became geographically mobile and started breaking these roots, right? We become more and more individual and forget what came before and what will come after. And we don't think about legacy in terms of we stand on the shoulders of these saints, right? One of the things about when you because I went to the same church in my hometown forever. And so I remember all the saints that were my grandparents' age and was told about their faith stories and how their faith stories led to my faith story, right? And so we, and so we, we, don't, we miss that view when we just isolate ourselves to who we are, to our little world, right? That's good. Uh, observation continued. And regarding Abraham, Abram, I remind myself of the generational longer view of God's promises when I grow impatient. Yeah, <laughs> exactly yeah. what you were just saying. Yeah. And then observation, interesting how God used the Ishmaelites to take Joseph to Egypt. <laughs> yes. He uses, he uses whoever he needs to. Right? I thought I saw another one in there, but maybe, I don't know what happened to it. I think that's it. All right. It's actually, we're spot on time, 7.45. Good so. landing. Again, well, we'll, be teaching well until, we'll be teaching until 7.50 or 7.55 <laughs> next week. Just so y'all bring a snack. Or bring all your hardest questions uh, next week. I can't wait to listen uh, to the podcast. I was, I was always wondering this about Job. It's like, well, oh, man. But anyway. I mean, it's only fitting that you have to answer alone. I mean, Job oh, I know. was alone. If Job was alone, I'm, yeah, this is fabulous. But if y'all sit, but in all honesty, please be in prayer for next week. Job, Job is, is drastically oversimplified <laughs> in, in most of the narratives, most of our cultural understanding. And it is a very complex and very subtle story. And it, and it's a, it, it really is a, a fascinating reflection on the character of God. Right, As Genesis kind of instantiates us to our world, Job almost instantiates us to God's world. To, to who God is and how he works. And it, and it is just a fascinating study. It's fascinating in light of the other narratives that were around at that time. It's, it's just it's cool stuff. Anyway, sorry. We'll talk about that next week. You good? I'm good. All right, let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word. Thankful for these truths. Thankful for these, 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 these people that lived, Father, so that we can, we can see the example of, of your hope. And the example of your redemption, Father, that even as broken and, and fallen as we are, Father, you can still use us. And there is still hope for us. And there is still hope for your kingdom in and through us. And so, Father, we, we pray that as we leave that we're changed, that we have a better grasp on, on, on your ability to use us and your ability to heal us and your ability to give us hope uh, so that we can go out to the world and share who Jesus is. And it's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen.